as a result of being rejected by God for all of his rebellion, Saul seals his doom once and for all by seeking the counsel of a witch, the ghost mistress of Endor. This is the 58th sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, and Exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from 1 Samuel in chapter 28. 1 Samuel in chapter 28, beginning in verse 8 through the end of the chapter. 1 Samuel 28, 8 through 25. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. And Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment. And he went and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, I pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit and bring me him up whom I shall name unto thee. And the woman said unto him, Behold, thou knowest what Saul hath done, how he hath cut off those that have familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Wherefore then layest thou a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul sware to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord liveth, there shall no punishment happen to thee for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up unto thee? And he said, Bring me up Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. And the woman spake to Saul, saying, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. And the king said unto her, Be not afraid, for what sawest thou? And the woman said unto Saul, I saw God descending out of the earth. And he said unto her, What form is he? And she said, Of an old man cometh up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed himself. And Samuel said to Saul, Why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up? And Saul answered, I am sore distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me, and answereth me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called thee, that thou mayest make known unto me what I should do. Then said Samuel, Wherefore then dost thou ask of me, seeing the Lord is departed from thee, and has become thine enemy? And the Lord hath done to him as he spake by me, for the Lord had rent the kingdom out of thine hand, and given it to thy neighbor, even to David. Because thou obeyest not the voice of the Lord, nor executed his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore hath the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. And the Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell straightway all along to the earth and was sore afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no bread all the day, nor all the night. And the woman came unto Saul, and saw that he was sore troubled, and said unto him, Behold, thine handmaid hath obeyed thy voice, and I have put my life in my hand, and have hearkened unto thy words, which thou spakest unto me. Now therefore, I pray thee, hearken thou also unto the voice of thine handmaid, and let me set a morsel of bread before thee, and eat, that thou mayest have strength when thou goest on thy way. But he refused, and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, compelled him, and he hearkened unto their voice. So he arose from the earth and sat upon the bed. 
And the woman had a fat calf in the house, and she hasted and killed it, and took flour and kneaded it, and did bake unleavened bread thereof. And she brought it before Saul and before his servants, and they did eat. Then they rose up and went away that night. The Apostle Paul writing to the churches at Galatia, Galatians in chapter 6, two verses only, 7 and 8, by the same Spirit, the Apostle writes, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now being cut off from any answer from the Lord as to what he should do in light of the battle situation, Saul seeks to pursue drastic measures. God had finally cut him off from any divine counsel whatsoever. As a result of his constant rebellion, his constant disobedience, his unwillingness to sincerely repent, and his murderous actions against the future king of Israel, David, God is now silent entirely. Seeing his plight, and in his desperation for an answer, because, as we're going to see, Saul is concerned about himself, once again, this narcissistic mentality, in his desperation for an answer, whether or not he should go up against the dreaded Philistines, or what he should do, Saul disguises himself so as not to be recognized by the witch, and under the cloak of darkness he seeks her counsel. We've seen this in verse 8, and Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment, and he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. Now, as we have also seen and also determined, instead of recognizing that God had utterly deserted him, Saul feeds into his carnal lust and commands his servants to seek for him a witch. As we also concluded last time, to seek the counsel from any source that is anti-biblical, in other words, those which are secular, secularists who are dead in trespasses and sins, that seeking is akin to seeking counsel from soothsayers and the ghost mistresses, the witches and the, the wizards that conjure up the spirits of the dead as if they are all wise and all knowing ones. They are the ancient ones who are all wise and all knowing, but they are not. They're fools and they are to be despised. We also saw how according to the law of God, witchcraft and those seeking counsel from witches, wizards and soothsayers is a capital offense. In other words, if convicted of witchcraft, that crime was punishable by death, which shows how hateful God sees this crime. How hateful witchcraft is to the Almighty. You think about that. Some might say today, well, witchcraft is just silliness. Well, no, no, not at all. God sees it as hateful, and he says those seeking counsel from a witch should be put to death. Because witchcraft is man seeking to be as God, which is exactly what Adam did when he rebelled. Now let's just for a moment consider Saul's act of deceit in his disguise. First, not only did he change his clothes as to appear to be someone else, 
he actually was someone else. Certainly, he was no longer acting as God's man or God's king in any capacity whatsoever. He was now a traitor. In fact, Samuel says that God now has become Saul's enemy, which says that it's Saul who is the enemy of God. So he's actually no longer God's man. He's the enemy of God. He's now the traitor. He's now the betrayer. He's now the man who is deserving of death. It's almost as if the scripture is implying that when God stripped off his royal garments and disguised himself by changing his clothes, he was stripped of his royal position entirely. Not even the witch could tell who Saul was. That's how cleverly he concealed his royal identity. But he was actually showing that he was another man. Secondly, rejecting the counsel of God, Saul did exactly what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Remember, Saul is a type of Adam. Adam and Eve rejected the counsel of God for the counsel of the serpent. They then disguised themselves with fig leaves while hiding amidst the trees of the garden in a very same way that Saul approaches this situation. And so we should not be surprised to see these stark similarities between Adam and Saul. Thirdly, Saul approaches the witch under the cover of darkness. This seems to indicate not only the fact that it was dark, obviously it was dark, but that Saul's soul was also dark. Saul's soul had become completely darkened by his sin. His spirit was now dead in trespasses and sins. He had gone completely to the dark side. There may even be a fourth notion here, as we have already alluded to. Saul is hiding from God by disguising himself and attending the witch under the cover of night. Very clearly, it was by night. Saul is about to betray everything that he was called to be and to do, since the reference to night seems to indicate betrayal, as we saw with Judas, the betrayer. Remember in John 13.30, he, Judas, then having received the sop, went immediately out, and then very cryptically, the scripture says, and it was night. The betrayer goes out at night. We see this idea also with Peter when he denied the Lord three times in Matthew 26.34. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee that this night before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice. You will betray what you said when you said I will never desert you. I will never betray you. I would rather die with you. And yet this night thou shalt deny me thrice. And then, of course, in the beginning, in the beginning of the creation, God is making a clear and definitive statement that he divides the day from the night. This symbolically refers to the distinction between good and evil. And at this point, Saul is completely separated from God in the same way as the darkness is completely separated and distinct from the light and the night is distinct from the day. Saul is now the betrayer. Saul has become the enemy of God and God responds in kind by becoming the enemy of Saul. Departing from God, Saul is now swallowed up in darkness and in the blackness of night seeking the counsel of a witch and that's what happens when we despise the counsel of God. 
when we seek the counsel of secularists, we then can fall very, very quickly into the darkness of night. Fifth, Saul's hope was misplaced. Notice what he's doing by going to the witch. He's placing his hope in a soothsayer. He's placing his hope for an answer of what he should do with someone who is far removed from God. He's placing his hope in a secularist who can only gain insight from the dead. She's raising up the dead. Saul didn't need counsel from a dead man. He needed counsel from the one who is life himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we need. We need the counsel of God. The lesson is very clear. Whenever we place our hope in man's wisdom, we will always be grossly disappointed and we risk being consumed by the darkness. Our hope is not in man, not in the devices of man, not in the counsel of man, not in the wisdom of man, not in the science of man. Our hope must be in Christ alone. As the apostle confirms in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 and following, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise, speaking of Christ. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for a confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, that's you and me, the immutability, the unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two unchangeable things, immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us, which hope, the hope of Christ, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Saul was seeking to hope in man. His hope was in man's wisdom, man's science, man's integrity, if man ever had any integrity. And Saul said, I pray thee, Divine unto me by the familiar spirit and bring me him up. And then she asks, whom shall I bring up? And Saul, of course, says, you bring up the man that I will name unto, unto you. And that man is Samuel. Misplaced hope. Paul identifies the Lord Jesus Christ as the only hope. The only hope in his opening salutation to Timothy, when he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior, and Jesus Christ, which is our hope. The Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Now the question that we ask, because thinking about the insanity of Saul, one might say, what is the man thinking? Why would he do this? Why would Saul do this? Didn't he know that this was a direct and blasphemous violation of God's law? Didn't he understand that this was punishable by death? Didn't he know that? Well, consider once again the warnings of the law. Leviticus 19.31 and Leviticus 20, verse 6 and verse 27. 
Regard not them that have familiar spirits, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them. Notice Saul was about to be further defiled, if that was even possible. And the soul that turneth after such as have familiar spirits, and after wizards, to go a-whoring after them, I will even set my face against that soul, this is why he's become the enemy of God, and will cut him off from among his people, a man also, or a woman that hath a familiar spirit, or that is a wizard, shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones, their blood shall be upon them. And then in Deuteronomy 18, verse 10 and 11, there shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or daughter to pass through the fire, or that uses divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto Yahweh, and because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Did not he know this? Of course he knew it. He certainly didn't care, did he? This act of rebellion was an added condemnation upon the man's soul and was one of the fundamental reasons for his execution by the Philistines. And we know this from 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13. Notice, So Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that hath a familiar spirit to inquire of it. So not only is God saying for everything that he did, but also, and he's making the point, because he consulted a witch. This act of witchcraft sealed the doom of King Saul. Not hearing any definitive word of counsel from the Lord and not being able to have any input from Samuel, Saul goes outside for his directives. In other words, Saul wanted to know what to do in his specific situation because he was cared about his specific situation. He wasn't really cared about the nation of Israel, the honor of God. He was worried about himself. So now we should ask this other question. Where should the Christian go when seeking directives? Where should the Christian go when seeking direction? The answer is, of course the Sunday school answer is, as children might say, we go to the Bible. We go to the Word of God, which is the right answer. Yet, as we have already seen, modern Christendom, who would say, we go to the Word of God, modern Christianity is a haven to all manner of witchcraft and familiar spirit counselors. Now think about the structure of the title. Why call witchcraft or those necromancers, those who raise the dead, those who seek after familiar spirits. Why was God why would God why would God use such a terminology, familiar spirits? Well using the Bible as its own dictionary, whenever the word spirit is used, it refers to mankind. It refers to people, not some disembodied spirit beings. Human beings are actually spiritual beings. And the Hebrew writer defines this for us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 and 23. Notice, he's speaking of the church, but ye, you people, you believers, you elect of God, but ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of justified men made perfect. That's who we are. That's who we are. 
That is who we are. We are the spirits of men, justified by the blood of Christ. Now, John defines it further. John refers to men as spirits when he warns the people of God to try the spirits. How do you try the spirits? You seek to talk to people to see where they're at, philosophically, theologically. Identifying these spirits as humans, John says this in 1 John 4, verse 1 and following. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets, those are the spirits, are gone out into the world. Hereby we know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come and even now already is in the world. The spirits are people. Witches and sorcerers are those who seek the counsel of familiar spirits, familiar to themselves. We may safely therefore assume that this terminology is pointing to the familiarity of man and his fallen reason and rationale. Note how the word familiar is used when it is not attached to witchcraft and how it testifies of individuals who are betrayers. Job 19.14 My kinsfolk have failed and my familiar friends have forgotten me. Psalm 41.9 Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, speaking of Judas, the betrayer, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me, also recognizing that this familiar friend is also Adam. Now, while the Hebrew words used are varied, the idea remains the same. Saul is seeking ungodly, humanistic, secular counsel, a spirit that is familiar to man, not the spirit of God, but the spirit of man. Now, Christian philosophy, which is not rooted in God's word, along with Christian psychology, which is not rooted in God's word, in fact, Christian psychology is actually an oxymoron, it leads the way, since it seeks to define man's problems apart from scripture. Because Christian psychology and psychiatry cannot solve man's issues because man's issue is sin. It's not your mother was unkind or your father was unkind. It was the fact that man is sinful. The apostle warns those at the church at Colossae and then he warns those at the church at Corinth to beware of these kinds of psychiatrists and the psychology of the familiar spirit. Notice what he says, Colossians 2.8, and 2 Corinthians 6.14 and following. Beware. Notice his counsel. Notice his warning. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. He's speaking of secular philosophy. After the tradition of men, that familiarity of men's traditions, after the rudiments of the world, of worldliness or secularism, and not after Christ, for in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, all the truth of God dwells in Christ. Paul writes this to the church at Corinth, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, or those who are familiar for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? 
And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said. I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and my daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Have nothing to do with that familiar secularist. J. Adams, one of, I would even say, one of the greatest Christian counselors, he weighs in and says this, any system, any system that proposes to solve human problems apart from the Bible and the power of the Holy Spirit as all of these pagan systems, including the self-worth system, is automatically condemned by Scripture itself. None of the humanistic psychologists profess Christian faith. Nor does their system in any way depend upon the message of salvation, love, joy, peace, etc., or discussed as if they were not the fruit of the Spirit, but merely the fruit of right views of oneself, which anyone can attain without the Bible or the work of the Spirit in his heart. He continues, For these reasons, the self-worth system, with its claim, must be rejected. It does not come from the Bible. Any resemblance between biblical teaching and the teaching of the psychiatrists is either contrived or coincidental. The adaptation of this so-called Christian psychology by pastors in the modern church have brought about sermons of a therapeutic nature rather than sermons preaching the gospel of the kingdom, faith and repentance. Today's sermons are therapeutic. They're not about the heart of man is deceitful, the heart of man is desperately wicked, we need to repent of our sin, it does not speak of our narcissism, our pride. The fact of the matter is this, psychology cannot cure the soul. Only an exposition of the scripture, faithfully applied by the Holy Spirit, can accomplish such a result. We see also pastors and churches going to man for their ideas on how to either start a church or structure a church. And so many churches are set up as secular businesses with the board of directors, minutes of the meetings, membership roles, 501c3 incorporation status. And these churches give members voting rights and, and some even invest in mutual funds, real estate holdings and other businesses. So they're looking to the world to set up Christ's people, Christ's church. Even the definition of church is borrowed from man's ideas. Instead of a church defined as those who believe and are born again as an eternal organism, assembling on the Lord's day for worship before God, and going out with the gospel of the kingdom, preaching it faithfully, the church is now defined as an institution, a corporation, a building made up of bricks and mortar, set up as a business entity, instead of the ecclesia. Another example of borrowing from man to establish Christ's church is the use of elaborate entertainment such as music, theater, light shows, gymnasiums, therapeutic groups, help groups. Today we even see some messages which try to get people into their 
into their churches by saying, we can heal your infirmities, we can lay hands on you, we could do this for you and do that for you. It's all about the physical, the physical, the physical. Well, their souls are languishing in darkness, death and deceit. Saul was seeking answers to questions that only God could provide. But he was unwilling to hear the hard counsel that only God could provide. As apart from God's judgment, the usual means of divine guidance were taken from Saul. That's what happens. When we keep seeking after wizards and, and, and witches and soothsayers, God judges us and he takes his counsel from us. We saw this in verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. Once we find our niche in rebellion, God removes his counsel from us. This is why we need to be so careful in looking to Scripture, looking to Scripture, and stop looking to man. Notice the judgment on Saul. He no longer had the prophet Samuel to inquire upon. No dreams were given to him of divine revelation. The Urim and the Thurim were not given to him any longer. They were, they were actually given to David, which further distanced Saul from God, since these were the tools used by the priest to determine God's will. Saul had ignored these means of divine directives. But now, needing them so desperately, they are taken from him. That's why it is so important for us to be about Worshipping the Lord on the Lord's Day, which is part of the means of grace, is where the scriptures are expounded, where lessons are taught. It's also important to be reading the scripture, to be learning how to apply the scripture so that God never takes his counsel from us. But if we neglect these things, we neglect church, we neglect fellowship, we neglect reading, we neglect praying, when crisis comes, as it did in Saul's day, do you really expect God to answer? Do you really expect God to answer? I received a phone call last evening from a cousin of mine that calls me all the time to tell me, so-and-so needs prayer, will you pray? No, it's not that I won't pray. But this is what people do when they have no relationship with God. They need to go elsewhere to get someone to pray for them. We need to be the ones who are praying. We need to have a relationship with God and we need never to neglect the means of grace. The more we despise the means of grace and the means of determining our life's direction by the scriptures, the more likely it is that these divine things will be taken from us. And once that happens, once we're in that crisis as it was with Saul, we will seek the counsel, not of God, but of corrupt men. Once we do that, we are doomed. And so in an attempt to circumvent God's word, Saul goes to the witch at Endor to seek counsel from, from man. And he said, I pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit, and bring me him up whom I shall name unto thee. Now, by assuring the witch that no harm will come to her if she violates God's law, we are plunged once again into the garden where the serpent assures Eve that even if she violates God's law, no harm will come to her. Acting like the serpent that he was, Saul tempts the woman to violate a law which would lead to her death. Like the serpent, Saul is invalidating the law's punishment by claiming it to be untrue. Did God really mean what he said? 
Was that Leviticus law? Was that Deuteronomy law really a death penalty? I don't think so. Did he really mean that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you would surely die? Did he really mean that if you practice witchcraft and sorcery, you would surely die? Did he really mean that if you sought the counsel of the soothsayer or the psychiatrist or the secularist, that you would surely die, that you would surely be destroyed? Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? Nah. Nah, that's just the word of God and man wrote the word and we can't listen to that. That was the Old Testament. Not only did Saul tell the witch that her violation would not result in death, he swore an oath to that fact by the name of Yahweh. And Saul sware unto her by Yahweh, saying, As the Lord liveth, there shall no punishment happen to thee for this thing. Just like the serpent that he was. You will not die, but you will be as God. Now this is also akin to a minister of the gospel or the legal institution of a nation telling their people that there will not be any public judgment, any divine discipline for violations to God's law. We can slaughter the innocents. We can inflate the economy. We can do anything we want. Has God really said that we have to follow his counsel? Has he really said that we have to follow his counsel? Note how God deals with Saul. He calls him the enemy. Saul uses God's name to imply that the lawgiver's clear commandments can be circumvented. I love when people say, especially when they're doing it from, from the podium in the, in the congressional house of delegates or in Congress, well, we prayed about this. We prayed about this. Saul uses God's name to imply that the lawgiver's clear commandments can be circumvented, ignored, or redefined. And what he had declared can be overturned by the inventions and imaginations of sinful men. Now, I understand when the secularists and the reprobates and civil government say these things, but when a minister of the gospel says it, it's unconscionable. So, in our world today, because they don't believe that God said, if you shed man's blood by your blood, you shall be destroyed by man's blood, man's blood shall be shed. We see the case for the overturning of the death penalty by men for premeditated murder, abortion, rape, kidnapping, and adultery, all capital offenses. So what Saul is telling this witch is that he will not enforce the law of God, that death penalty in specificity, that law of God, for her violation. And so when any establishment, church or state, ignores the direct judicial mandate of God's law, that penology of God's law for various crimes, they are in effect claiming to be as God and are guilty of betrayal and blasphemy. Fully confident that no harm will befall her for her crime, the witch asks, Whom shall I bring up unto thee? And Saul says, Bring me up Samuel. Now by this request, Saul is attempting to overturn God's providence. Notice what happens here. God has determined that, that Samuel dies. Samuel dies. Saul disagrees. Samuel will be alive again. 
God had determined that Saul would not be given a clear directive as to what to do. Saul disagrees. God had determined that witchcraft was illegal and that the king had to enforce God's law. Saul disagrees. I remember telling someone once that this is what God says and you have committed these offenses. And the man said to me, I disagree. I said, yes, but here are the scriptures. And the man said to me, I'm sorry, but I disagree because it doesn't apply to me. He actually said that. Saul disagrees. He would be as God. Now the witch brings us to what seems to be the spirit of Samuel in verse 12. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. And the woman spake to Saul, saying, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. Now there are a number of questions that need to be addressed here. Why did the woman cry out? And how did she know that her secret visitor was Saul? Well, firstly, it seems that she cries out because this apparition is not one of her familiar spirits. She was very unfamiliar with this spirit. It was not one of her spirit ghosts. It's actually Samuel himself. And she recognizes him in the same way that Peter, James, and John recognized Moses and Elijah at the Mount of Transfiguration. Secondly, she immediately knows that it is Saul that is in disguise. Well, how did she know that? Saul didn't say, I'm Saul. Because Samuel told her. Samuel revealed it to her that you are standing before the king. Seeing the witch's horror and astonishment, he encourages her to continue and not to be afraid and to tell him plainly what she sees. And the king said to her, Saul, be not afraid for what sawest thou? Now notice, Samuel is revealing himself to the witch, not to Saul. And the woman said unto Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. There's a curious statement here in verse 13. The word God or gods here is a plural word. It actually is simply the word Elohim, which God uses for himself. Or in this context, a God possibly referring to Samuel as God's prophet, for he is now representing God while both on the earth, as he did before, and even now. He's going to give the prophecy against Saul. So what is so interesting as to her statement is that she sees Samuel representing God as the judge, because that's what he's going to do right now to Saul. He's going to judge him, ascending out of the earth as he comes to judge Saul. So he sees God's representative, the judge, the God, coming up to judge Saul. And seeing this, the woman is horrified because she is seeing Samuel as a God, or in in God-like fashion, ascending out of the earth. She's totally beside herself. She was expecting something that she was familiar with, but this was totally unfamiliar with her. Saul then asks her to relate to him what the form looks like. And she said, An old man cometh up, and he is covered with a mantle. This was Samuel. Not one of the witches' fabricated ghosts. It was Samuel. Notice the next line. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed himself. His response would not have been such if it was not Samuel himself. If it was simply a familiar spirit from the spirit world, Saul would not have reacted in the way that he did. Nor would the witch be so terrified. And so we can see from the narrative that this is really Samuel and not simply some spirit apparition. God had caught both Saul and the witch in their own evil devices by hijacking the witch's incantations. This was pure judgment. 
Note Samuel's anger and Saul's reasoning. And Samuel said to Saul, Why hast thou disquieted me? Why hast thou angered me to bring me up? And Saul answered, I, and notice how this, his flesh is out here. Notice what he's saying. Notice the narcissism behind this. I am so distressed. Notice, I am not worried about the honor of Israel. I'm not worried about the nation will be destroyed by the Philistines. I am so distressed for the Philistines make war against me, not us, not God's people, but me. And God has departed from me. I'm worried about me and answereth me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called thee that thou mayest make known unto me what I should do. Finally, his narcissism is blatantly in your face. Once again, Saul is all about Saul. I am so distressed. God has departed from me. He's not answering me anymore. Make known unto me what I should do. So in vain, Saul pleads for guidance from the man of God, which is ironic because he had neglected Samuel's counsel time and time again. And now, at his wit's end, he asks for aid, but it's too late. And that's what happens. We don't wait to be at our wit's end to ask for counsel. There's a time when God no longer enjoins himself to a people who continue to ignore or take for granted and disobey his holy commandments. Samuel tells Saul as much in verse 16. Then said Samuel, Wherefore then dost thou ask of me, seeing the Lord is departed from thee and is become thine enemy? A couple of things stand out here. Number, number one, God has departed from Saul and is no longer his redeemer, God, king, and counselor. Secondly, God is now considering himself Saul's enemy. And what is interesting here is that when Saul began his long train of rebellious actions against Samuel, his counsel, and the commandments of God, he was already on the road to practicing witchcraft. We saw that in 1 Samuel fifteen twenty-three. Because rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And that is what Saul was all about all along. Rebellion, rebellion, rebellion. You can only rebel so much and so far until God just cuts you off. Don't become God's enemy. God forbid that God becomes your enemy. That is an enemy that you can never win over. You will always be destroyed when God becomes your enemy. Samuel then rehearses what God has done to Saul as a result of his rebellion. Notice, and this is fascinating, he goes back into, into Saul's rebellious life. And the Lord had done to him as he spake by me, for the Lord had rent the kingdom out of thine hand and given it to thy neighbor, even to David, because thou obeyest not the voice of the Lord, nor executest his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Notice he's going back to that time when, when Saul refused to kill the king Amalek. Therefore hath the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. Notice, not only were all of these rebellious things part of the problem, but that one thing God is angry with, Amalek. Samuel returns to the event of Amalek when Saul refused to slay the wicked Amalekite king. You see, God told Saul that he wanted all remnants and influences of Amalek and his tribe to be wiped out. But Saul didn't want to do that. Saul was too soft. Saul thought that he knew better than God. How much do we find ourselves as Saul? 
We know better than God. I know better than God. I will do this thing, or I will do that thing, I'll do the other thing, because I know better than God. Saul thought that he knew better than God. He was too soft. He was too tolerating of the wicked man, Amalek, and his wicked tribe, so he decided to disobey the voice of the Lord. I know better than God. He says, I shall not eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, but I know better than God. I shall eat. Now, if you remember, Samuel had to slay the king because Saul refused. And by implication, he had to cut the king into 12 pieces, one for each of the 12 tribes in order to impress upon them how important it was to obey God and utterly destroy the influence of paganism. But we are too soft. We put out the right hand of fellowship to the seculars. We put out the right hand of the fellowship to the civil magistrates who peep and mutter like the witches that they are. And the lesson is clear. Do not make friends with the wicked. Do not tolerate the workers of iniquity. It's time to stop tolerating the wicked and begin to pray against them. And I know the modern church today. Wait a minute. Whoa, pastor. You're so angry. Ooh. You are right. Be angry. And sin not. God is angry with the wicked every day. Every day. There's not one day that goes by that God is not angry with the wicked. And if we have the mind of Christ, we would be angry too. But we are not as angry as we ought to be. Samuel then pronounces a prophetic judgment on Saul. One that only God can give through the mouth of his prophet Samuel. Notice verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons you will be cut off the tribe of Benjamin's legacy, the dynasty that you hope to establish through the tribe of Benjamin. It will be no more. Thy sons will be slain with thee. The Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel, the entire nation for their apostasy from following you, you wicked king, into the hand of the Philistines. A dreadful judgment. Note Saul's response to the prophecy of his death. Then Saul fell straightway all along on the earth and was sore afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no bread all the day or all the, all the night. Well, seeing the anguish of Saul, interestingly, the, the witch, probably a very kind woman, showing kindness and payment of Saul's refusal to enforce God's law upon her offers Saul a meal. And the woman came unto Saul and saw that he was sore troubled and said unto him, Behold, thine handmaid, all of a sudden she's his handmaid, hath obeyed thy voice. She's obeying the voice of Saul. And I have put my life in my hand and have hearkened unto thy words which thou spakest unto me. Going to a wicked man, and putting her hopes in him. Now therefore I pray thee, hearken thou also unto the voice of thine handmaid, and let me set a morsel of bread before thee, and eat that thou mayest have strength, and thou goest out on thy way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, compelled him. And that's the problem with Saul. Everybody influences him. He's as pliable as a wax nose. 
his servants, the same individuals who said, oh, you need a witch? I know exactly where to find one. You want to kill David? We're right there with you. But his servants, together with the woman, compelled him. And he hearkened unto their voice, a lamb going to the slaughter, just like he was that wicked soul. So he arose from the earth and sat upon the bed. Now, of course, the woman is is saying, I'm going to set a morsel of bread before you. Now, while expecting a morsel of bread, perhaps a simple meal, this ghost mistress, this witch, fixes him a meal fit for a king. Indeed, it will be his last. Nevertheless, it was a glorious meal, which further seals his doom. Notice verse 24 and following. And the woman had a fat calf in the house, and she hasted and killed it, and took flour and kneaded it, and did bake unleavened bread thereon. And she brought it before Saul and before his servants, and they did eat. Then they rose up and went away that night. Interesting end to this narrative. Now, on any other occasion, and perhaps from any other woman, this might have symbolized a redemption meal. Certainly all the components for a redemption meal are in view here. The fatted calf, the flour, the unleavened bread. But what is conspicuously missing is the flagon of wine, which would symbolize the atoning blood of Christ. What is more conspicuous is that this meal is prepared by a witch. It's prepared by a vile woman, an enchanter, a seeker of familiar spirits, a violator of the law of God. And so the question which must be raised at this point is, is this a meal that was dedicated to idols or any other pagan deity? Could this meal be redemptive? And if it was redemptive, do we see anything happen on the battlefield against the Philistines that would give us any kind of clue that Saul was redeemed? Or was that judgment sure and secured? Paul warns the church at Corinth. He says in chapter 10, verse 19 and verse 28, What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But Saul had no conscience any longer. He took the meal from the vile woman, which further indicted him and brought his doom upon himself. Now there's another observation that should be made concerning a meal. Eating a meal is a form of communion. It is the establishment of a covenant relationship, a covenant union with those at the table. So when we have the Lord's Supper, it is symbolic of a covenant meal of those of us who are one in Christ. And yet, Saul has placed himself in an unholy alliance, an unholy communion, and in a covenantal alliance, not with God, This isn't Abraham that is making the fatted calf. This is a witch. He's uniting himself in this covenant communion with a witch. And this is Saul's last act of rebellion. His last act of rebellion before he meets his demise on the field of battle, exactly as Samuel prophesied. 
We will examine that when we continue in our exposition of the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.